Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. All right, so if you haven't been here yet in the series we're in right now, we're talking about how to fuel up when life feels empty. We've hit a lot of different subjects already. Um, tonight you might, or today you might think that this is one you can just check out on, but probably not. And so uh, whether you're um, looking to fuel up in your marriage or in your parenting or in your finances, we kind of covered those the last several weeks. And today we're going to dig into a brand new topic, and I think it'll apply to everybody, um, even the ones who on the surface think maybe it doesn't apply to them. You guys ever watch Snow White, the original, like Snow White, the cartoon? No? Only me and Veronica and Tara? Is that, everybody watch that? Right? Is there anybody that hasn't seen that? Anybody that hasn't seen Snow White? Come on, man, that's a classic. 1937, I think they made that. 1937. So Kenny saw that when he was a kid. But, um, and so, uh, okay, in that, in that movie, you know, they got the seven dwarfs, right? And, you know, the seven dwarfs are, like, kind of always in a good mood. And then they go to work, right? And they're like, hi-ho, hi-ho. Yeah, it's off to work we go, right? And then they get to work, and then they're always, like, whistling while they work. You know what I mean? Like, Snow White's, like, singing with them, like, whistle while you work and all that, you know? And uh, that's why they made that movie a kid's movie. Because, like, if they made an adult movie with seven dwarfs, like, whistling while they worked and happy to go to work and off the work we go, singing on the way, you'd, like, want to punch them in the face. You know what I mean? But since it's just kids that watch it, they're like, oh, I love that, you know? Because anybody that's got a job, anybody that's worked, knows that, like, come Monday morning or whatever day you got to go back to work, you're rarely whistling on the way in. You're rarely feeling like it's going to be a great day. And so actually, the statistics say that in the United States, the number one most depressed day is Sunday night. Sunday night, because nobody wants to get up on Monday morning, go back to school or go back to work. And so Sunday night becomes like the most depressing night in our culture. In fact, 80% of employees in America say that they would classify themselves as dissatisfied with their job. 80%. And I don't know about the other 20%, but even they probably aren't whistling while they work. Maybe like a couple crazies. But most people are like running on fumes, running on empty, running kind of a depleted fuel tank when it comes to their job or their um, uh, education. Or maybe you don't have a job outside of the home. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or maybe you're a, a homemaker or um, maybe you've got seven jobs outside of the home. Maybe you're um, taking a full class load and working a couple jobs on the side. But I think everybody can kind of relate to this feeling of just being depleted, just being empty on the inside when it comes to work, dreading going to work, dreading going to the next class, dreading kind of going home and having all those chores or duties kind of waiting for you. And so for most of us, jobs have been boiled down to just an amount of money or a number of days that I got to accumulate or put in till retirement. And you just work and work and work. And, and the goal is really just to get to the weekend or just to get to the vacation or just to get to the retirement date. But maybe there's a better way. What if God has a better purpose for your job than that? What if he doesn't want it to feel like you're running on empty, like you're running on fumes? What if he wants you to feel full inside? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, just like every other week of the series, what I'd like to do is just start you off with some indicators that you might be running on fumes in your job, in your um, career, if you're a student, if, in your uh, education, if you're just a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home wife or homemaker or whatever. Like 
this applies to everybody because everybody has work to do, right? So what we're talking about today is work, not necessarily a job, but just work, right? And everybody gets that feeling of um, kind of running on fumes in it. So here's some indicators you might be running on fumes in your work. You ready? Here's the first one. Feeling trapped. You feel trapped. Everybody's like, Veronica, she's about to like, she's like, doesn't even have to take notes. She's like, I could preach this, you know? But it's like, you feel trapped. You start to think things like, there's no way out. It's always going to be this way. I guess this is as good as it's going to get. And the longer you work, the more you seem to complain about it because you just feel trapped by it. Second one, you feel deeply, deeply undervalued. Now, everybody feels undervalued from time to time. Everybody. There's no job out there where the boss or the coworkers or the customers make you feel valued all the time. It doesn't exist. So everybody, whether it's a teacher that's um, kind of too hard on you or it's a boss that kind of doesn't cut you any slack, everybody feels undervalued at school, at work, at their house. But this is different. This is like deeply. I put, that's why I put the word deeply. It's like a chronic undervalued. You never feel appreciated. You never feel valued by the people around you, maybe the people above you. You always just feel kind of like second class, uh, afterthought, not really that important. And so after a while, you start to get suspicious of everybody else's motives. And so if they do something good at the office, you're thinking they're just sucking up. Or if they do something good at home, you're just thinking like they think you don't do a good enough job at that. So you're suspicious of everybody else's motives because you've gone so long feeling deeply undervalued. Here's the third one. You start to withdraw from life. All the people you work with, all the other kids in your classes, they all become strangers. You don't hang out with any of them. You can't wait to clock out and get away from those people for the rest of the night. You just start to withdraw. In fact, it spills over into your own relationships at home, your personal relationships with friends. You just start to withdraw and you start to shrink in, inside yourself. Maybe that's you. Here's number four. Are you ready? Downsized dreams. You start to edit down your goals from pie in the sky to just crumbs. And you conclude that I guess my job will never fulfill me like I thought it would at the beginning. I guess I'll never find the fulfillment I was looking for from career. And now you're just punching a clock, just biding your time, just waiting till it's your turn to retire. So you shrink down your dreams. Because you don't go to any like nine-year-old and be like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And like, oh, I'd like to have a dead-end job. Doesn't mean anything to me. Be miserable my whole life and dread going in. Nobody says that. But somewhere along the way, we downsize our dreams, right? Number five, you develop little to no fuse. In other words, the slightest little thing starts to set you off. This is me. If I get stressed at work, if I feel undervalued, if I start to run on fumes in my job, then the slightest little thing sets me off. Nobody can seem to meet your expectations either at work or at home. And so you just start to do everything yourself. So maybe one or all of those are you, but if any of those are you, I'm just saying today it's possible, it's possible that you're running on fumes in your career, in your education, in your, fam in your home, wherever it is you work, it's possible you're running on fumes. But I think there's a better way. I think God's word has a better way. And you experience all those feelings and all those um, tendencies and you start to just hate, hate your job. Just hate it. There's no other way to say it. And if people were like, how do you like your job? Be like, I hate it. I dread it. 
And you maybe think to yourself, like, work? It's good. I guess you've got to do it. But, like, work just doesn't seem to be working for me. And you feel empty. And you think, maybe I'm not in the right career. And so you switch jobs only to find out that the next job has all the same problems. And you switch jobs again. And this is one of the reasons why so many people hop from job to job now. Looking for fulfillment. Looking for more meaning. Looking to be filled. But finding the same brown grass on the other side. The next job. And for many of us, like, our identity even gets wrapped up in what we do. So now we become known as whatever our job is. And before too long, you're just, if you're honest with yourself, you're just absolutely, absolutely miserable. And no longer do you go to work saying, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work I go. You now go to work saying, I-O, I-O, so it's off to work I go. And you're just trying to pay back debt. And you mix it together with what we talked about last week. And job just becomes nothing more than a paycheck. And if I didn't have to have the money, I'd quit today. How many people feel like that? Yeah, yeah. But maybe there's a better way. Maybe that isn't what God wants you to get out of work. And the fact is, you're going to spend nearly 50% of your waking life at work. And so I don't think God wants you to be miserable for half your life. I can't find that in the Bible anywhere. So here's the bottom line for today. You ready? Here's the bottom line. If you miss everything else, this is kind of like the, the goal of today. You ready? You will never understand your purpose at work until you first understand the purpose of work. And so what happens is we go into our jobs with all these expectations of what work is supposed to be and what it's supposed to do for us. And, and then somewhere along the line, we realize those expectations aren't getting met. And so we start to get depressed, discouraged. Just like the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so if you have all these hopes and these dreams and these expectations, but they don't ever get met, you start to get discouraged. And that's why nobody hates their job on the first day. It's pretty hard to find somebody on the first day of work like, it was awful. Almost everybody would be like, it was pretty good. I really liked it. It wasn't so bad. And then like a week later, like, yeah, it's okay. And then about, it takes about a month. It takes about a month for you to realize that all the expectations you went into that job or that college with or that classroom with, all those expectations you went into that family with, takes about a month for you to realize. Now, like a marriage sometimes takes like a year. Sometimes it takes like a week, you know. But, it's like, but then at some point you realize like all these hopes and all these dreams, all these expectations I had for this career, none of it's working out the way I planned. And so we go into this falsely thinking that my job is going to fulfill all these things I've got inside of me. And it always falls short. But the truth is that all those expectations are expectations that God never intended your job to fill. So I wrote down just a couple of them that came to my mind, things that you might like expect your job to do for you, that God is pretty clear your job isn't supposed to do for you. Now see if any of these sound like you. My job will make me financially secure. That's probably like the number one. We, we choose our major in college based off of that assumption. We switch from job to job based on that assumption. It'll pay me more. It'll give me the answer to all my financial problems. Only to find out down the road, like we're still a little stressed about money. Because God never intended your job 
to be the thing that makes you feel financially secure. Here's another one. My job will give me purpose and fulfillment. Lots of people feel like that. But that's not true either. God never says that. My job will give me an identity. It'll make me somebody. But God never says that either. All of those things, my identity, becoming somebody, finding purpose and fulfillment, being financially secure, God says he wants to be the source of all those things. So if I set my job up to be the thing that makes me feel fulfilled, to be the thing that makes me feel secure, to be the thing that makes me feel relevant and important, it's only going to take about a month. And you're going to realize the job isn't going to do that. And so that's where we are. That's where we're left. So I found this one verse in the Bible. I'm going to share it with you. We'll dig a little deeper, if you don't mind. I'll give you some practical tips and tools to go with you. But I just want to give you one verse I found. It's a great chapter, the whole chapter, Colossians chapter 3. If you want a chapter on like how to handle all the things of life, my work, my, my family, my friend relationships, my all that stuff. It's like a great chapter on that. But one verse, Colossians chapter 3, Verse 23 sums up everything we're going to talk about about work. You ready? Here it is. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Okay? Now, we're going to like rip it apart, dig deeper. But in that verse, there's three things, three things you need to change to fuel up when it comes to your work. So if you're one of the people here that felt like some of those indicators were you and you're running on fumes in your work or at school or at home, wherever you do your work, wherever you do most of your job or your, your um, working, if you're one of those people, this verse shows us three changes we got to make. Here, I underlined all three of them. Ready? Here's the first one. Work willingly, right? Change your attitude. You got to change your attitude. Now listen, what willingly doesn't mean like happy. That's not the word there. It's like you don't have to be like a psycho. Going into work, being like, I'm so glad to be here. Yes, thank you, man. Have another drill sergeant. No, you don't have to be like super giddy about going to work. That's not what willing means, right? Uh, some translations of the Bible uh, translate that word as heartily. Not, not hardly. I know some of us work hardly. Not hardly. Heartily. That's a different word, right? But willingly. But the word there in Greek actually means to put all of your heart and soul into it. That's what he's saying. That's the attitude we're supposed to have about work. I go into work, wherever that is, if it's at my house, if it's at a school, or if it's at a place of employment, I go into work and I put all of my heart and soul into it. That's working willingly. That's changing my attitude. You got it? Here's the second one. He says, and not just at some stuff, at whatever you do. So I got to change my job description. Because my job description is not just the stuff I like. I know there's some subjects I enjoy studying more than others. I know there's some classes that I like the teacher in better than others. I know there's some tasks at work that are kind of easy and I don't mind doing them and some that are hard and I dread doing them. But I'm supposed to take every piece of my job, whatever I'm doing, I'm supposed to change my job description to include everything I'm required to do and do it with all my heart and soul. You got it? And I think for too long on those first two, like we've thought that like my job is supposed to be something that makes me happy and that I should be able to just do whatever pieces of it I want to do. And that's really a lot of the root cause of why we feel like we're running on fumes, right? But instead, I go into school, I go into work, I go home, and I do everything that's required of me with all of my heart and soul. 
It sounds bad so far, doesn't it? Hang with me. Hang with me. I know it sounds bad because then you can't be grouchy and can't complain and you can't refuse to do certain things and you can't just do it half-heartedly when nobody's looking and you can't try to get away with stuff. You have to kind of give it all you got. And then he gets to this last one. He says, as though you were working for the Lord. And I just put down, you got to change your boss. Because most of us have the wrong view of who we work for. And Paul's pretty clear when he writes this in Colossians, like you're supposed to be working as though you were working for the Lord, not for somebody else. And just so you know that he's talking about you. Because I think it'd be easy to look at this and be like, well, you don't know how bad it is where I work. Like you don't know how bad my boss is. You don't know how, how lengthy my job description is. You don't know how hard it is to have a good attitude at my job. Just so you know, he's talking about you. He's actually in this context writing to slaves and talking to them about how they're going to work for their master who doesn't even pay them. So before you think you got it worse than the people he's talking about, keep in context who he's talking to. And he's talking to all of us. And this is it. Now I'm going to dig in. You're like, I know the question is kind of like, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? That's easy to say. I know I'm supposed to have a good attitude. I know I'm supposed to give things all I got. I know I'm supposed to be doing everything for Jesus and not just for myself or not just for someone. But how? It's, it's so hard. I don't know how to fix it inside of me. It's, it's kind of been broken so long. It's all I know how to do now is complain about work, look for shortcuts, and do only what I feel like doing. That's all I know. So what do I do? So I, I, I think there could be a hundred things you could do, but I tried to just keep it simple for us today. So I got two things. You ready? Two things that everybody in the room could do starting today. Simple things that you could do to make your job better, to make your education better. Not, not make you happier about it. That, that isn't the purpose. That isn't the goal. But, but could make them better. It could keep you filled up on the inside as you do them keep you fueled up so you're not like, you know, ready to hang it up because work stinks so bad. You got to let me give you both of them. My first one I called measure your reflection. Measure your reflection. So if you're a note taker, jot that down in your notes, put that in your phone. You need to be able to see both of these each day. You ready? Measure your reflection. Measure your reflection. Instead of looking at the circumstances of your day to determine whether or not it was a good day or a bad day, right? Instead of doing that, Ask yourself one question each day. Here's the question. You ready? Did anybody see Jesus because of me today? Did anybody see Jesus better because of what I said or did today? Measure your reflection. Okay, I'm going to show you. It's a little earlier in the same chapter, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says this, Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks through him, to God the Father. Do you get it? You represent Jesus. Only if you're a Christian. If you're here and you're a Christian. If you're not, just hang with us for a minute. But if you're a Christian, you represent Jesus in everything you do. So the question you should be asking is, what's my reflection look like? What have I been showing off today? Have I been showing anybody else Jesus in the things I say or do? Because Jesus wouldn't take a shortcut when the boss isn't looking. Jesus wouldn't look for a way to get away from those disgusting people as quick as he could. Jesus wouldn't complain about how difficult it is. He'd just probably bite his tongue, say nothing, 
go about his business with a good attitude. He'd probably work willingly at whatever he did as if he were doing those things for God and not himself. Right? You got it? So change your, or measure your reflection. Measure your reflection. I'm a representative of Jesus. And Jesus tells this one parable kind of over and over. It's, it, it's like two or three different stories he tells in the New Testament, but he ends them all the same way. I don't have enough time to give you all the backstory on them, but one of them is like a, 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 a master who's going away for a long time, and he leaves all of his money to some of his servants. And he says, well, I'm gone. I want you to manage my money for me, right? And he comes back, and he kind of evaluates how they managed the money while he was gone. Another instance is called the parable of the shrewd manager. And this, this boss or this landowner, this master, comes to his, his, um, his manager, his um, key guy, his number one guy, and he says to him, like, hey, I just want you to know you're about to be fired. I'm going to let you go. And so get all your affairs in order because you're about to have to be looking for a new job. And the guy's, like, stressed. He's like, what am I going to do now? I don't really know how to do anything else. And he's like, and, uh, and I'm too proud to beg for money. He's like, what am I going to do now? And so the guy calls in all the people that owe, owe the master debt. And he's like, how much do you owe my master? And the one guy's like, I owe him, like, 10 grand. He's like, make it five. Pay it today. And the other guy's like, I owe him eight grand. He's like, oh, make it five grand. And he cuts everybody's bill. You would think the master would be angry about that, but the master turns out being like, no, at least he had enough shrewdness, enough cunning to kind of like take care of himself. And he knew that if he did this, all these people would be like, once you're fired, we'll take care of you. You had our back then, we'll have your back now. It's like he, at least, and, and Jesus is like, at least the people in the world know how to like make a deal how to be cunning and true. But he ends all these parables that are around this same idea. He ends them all the same way. I want to read you how he ends them because it applies to what we're talking about today. It's in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 10. He says this, If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? Why, and, and if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? What's he saying? He's like, I'm watching you to see how you manage every opportunity, every dollar, every ability. And, and if you won't do the right thing with the little bit I've given you, why would I trust you with even more? And you think, is that just talking about money? Of course not. In fact, in all those stories, not always just talking about money. Sometimes he's talking about your approach to managing. He's really talking about how you manage your ability, your time, yes, your money, but everything. Everything is supposed to be God's. And so he's looking to see, like, will you be faithful with the little stuff? So how do I do this? How do I measure my reflection each day? Here's how you start. You ready? Here's how. You just be real faithful with the small stuff, right? When the boss isn't looking, when you could lie on the report, when you could cheat on that paperwork and just copy something from an old form, you don't. You just do the right thing. When, when that employee's not there that day because they're off sick or they took a vacation day, you don't, you don't talk trash about them the whole day. You just keep your mouth shut. I get it, they're, they're a jerk. Everybody works with jerks. Grow up, we all work with jerks. Especially me. Oh, I'm just kidding, Emma. Don't even tell Brad I said that because Brad's my only cohort. See where I was going? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. But we all get that. But just kind of like keep your mouth shut. 
you know? When you could take the shortcut, do it the hard way. When, when everybody else is goofing around and cutting corners and getting away with stuff behind the boss's back, you just be faithful with the little stuff. When you could take an extra day off, even though you've already used up all your days off for the year and you don't feel very good, just go in. When you could wing it or read the cliff notes or copy off somebody else's exam, you just do the work and accept the grade. You just be real faithful in the small stuff. And in that way, you'll start to reflect Jesus. So that's what he would do. He'd just walk away from the big stuff for the little stuff. 99 people over there, but I'm worried about the one. I'm, I'm looking to just like do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. Here's the second thing you can do today. Now that one you got to do every day. This one you only got to do once a week. It's easier, see? Reject the Titanic myth. That's what I call this one. Reject the Titanic myth. All right, so I don't know how many of you know the story of the Titanic. One of the uh, kind of most infamous incidents or disasters or tragedies like in our history. But um, the Titanic was this huge cruise ship. It was the biggest ship of its time. And it was proposed or thought to be unsinkable, right? I, I don't know. I would think almost everybody's heard of that, hopefully. But, and and, some, and it sank in the Atlantic. Um, and, and over 1,500 people died in it, right? And so, uh, but, but today, like now, you know, 100 years later or whatever, like we look at the Titanic and we think that the reason it, it couldn't sink, the reason everybody thought it couldn't sink because it was so big. But that isn't actually true. The reason people thought it couldn't sink was because of the design of its hull, that it had been compartmentalized. And so the theory was like that all these different compartments could fill up with water and the boat still not sink. Up to four of them, I think, or something. But there were some you know, definite flaws in the design. They weren't made watertight. And so one, one, one filled up, they just overflow and the other one's right. So of course, it eventually sank and people died. But there's a lot of like, I don't know, speculation, or if you watch the History Channel a lot or whatever, you find a lot of speculation on like, could anything have gone down differently to A, keep the Titanic from sinking, and B, to have saved all the victims who died when it sank, right? And one of the ones I read this week was like super interesting. There's this theory out there that the Titanic wouldn't have sunk if when it hit the iceberg, it had just stopped and waited for help. But instead, they were very arrogant about it, and they just motored on at full speed, trying to get to the next ship, the one that would help them as quick as they could. But if they had just stopped and made some minor repairs, the boat would have stayed above water until the other ship got there. But instead, they kept pressing. You know why they kept going forward? Why they kept hitting it at full speed? Because they thought so arrogantly that because this ship is compartmentalized, I can just keep pushing ahead and I won't ever sink. And we do the exact same thing with work. I can just keep pushing forward at full steam as fast as I can and I'll never sink. But a hole in the boat, just to kind of paraphrase what Brad would say, the hole in a boat is a hole in a boat. <laughs> That's, like. That's like a good joke I got with Brad. But okay, so you get it like, but sometimes we just need to slow down a little bit. In fact, even after everybody on board knew that the boat had hit an iceberg and they were being told it was going to sink, they, the survivors said still most of the passengers and crew didn't believe it would sink. They still thought it would stay up. And some of us are like taking on water in our lives and we just won't slow down. 
We think we can compartmentalize it. I know work is stressful, but it won't bleed into my family. I know I'm working a lot of hours, but I can manage it all. I I can just keep pushing forward. So here's how you do this one. You ready? How do I do it? I have a Sabbath. I know that sounds like a church word. People don't like to talk about that one in America today. But a Sabbath is just where I take one out of every seven days and I rest. And I don't work. But it's not just rest. I'm going to show you in the Bible in just a second. It's not just rest. A Sabbath is rest, no work, rest for the purpose of getting closer to God. That's it. So I can't just sleep all day. I can't just sleep all day. I can't just be lazy. It's not just about that. It is about rest, but it's rest for the purpose of getting closer with God on that day. So maybe I read my Bible. Maybe I sing some worship songs. Maybe I got a good book that kind of challenges my faith. Maybe I uh, I listen to a podcast or watch some preaching online. Or maybe I just get with my family and talk about the things of God. Repeat some of God's commands over and over to my kids. But I look for a way to take my work and push it off to the side. And maybe for you, that means turning your phone off. Maybe for you, that means just refusing to go into the office. Maybe for you, that means refusing to open up the papers you got to grade on that day. But there's always work to be done. I get it. There's always work to be done. I don't hardly know one person doesn't feel like that. I always feel like that. There is always work to be done. You're never going to feel like the job's all done. You just got to choose to walk away from it and rest to get closer to God. Now, here's the thing. Like, if you are checking every day to kind of make sure the things you do and say are reflecting Jesus, and if once a week you're resting for the purpose of getting closer to God, here's what will happen if you just do those two things. Ready? What will happen is slowly over time, your attitude will start to change. Slowly over time, your job description will start to change. And slowly over time, you'll start to have a different opinion of who your boss is. Do you get it? I'm not working for people. I'm working for the Lord. It's easy to look at a pastor and be like, that's what he's doing. But that's what all of us are supposed to do. These instructions weren't given to just preachers. They were given to all of God's people. God started this whole idea of Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. You get it? I know you don't think you need rest. I know you think you can just go full steam ahead. I know you think you won't sink until you do. We all need it. So if it's a Monday, if it's a Sunday, if it's a Saturday, for us it's Friday night to Saturday night. Friday night at dinner to Saturday night at dinner, we don't do hardly a thing. We spend time with Jesus, and we spend time with our family, and we just rest. We don't meet with people. I don't work on my sermon. I know some of you are like, I can tell. I don't work on my sermon. I don't meet with anybody. I don't plan anything. I don't organize anything. I don't record anything. We just rest. Stephanie doesn't work with any clients. She doesn't do any paperwork, and there's always paperwork to do, right? But we just don't do it. We're not godlier than you. Probably weaker. I just know I need it. And I didn't know I needed it until we started doing it. And now it hits me all the time. Be like, man, I don't have time for this Sabbath. 
but I desperately needed it. And that's how you're going to feel every time. Here's what he said. Here's what God said to his people in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. And I gave them my Sabbath days of rest as a sign between them and me. It was to remind them that I am the Lord. Not just to kick back and relax. It's to remind them that I'm the boss. That I'm in charge. The one who had set them apart to be holy, to be different. I know nobody else is doing that stuff. But you're supposed to be different. Do you get it? See, ultimately, the purpose of my job is worship. Now that's like another kind of big fancy church word. And here's the thing, like worship isn't a song, although it could be a song. Worship isn't coming to church, although coming to church could be worship. Worship isn't reading my Bible, although reading my Bible could be worship too. That isn't what worship is. Worship is my gratitude. It's my gratitude to a God that deserves it. It's me giving him everything I have because of everything he's done for me. Here's my definition of worship. You ready? It's me giving Jesus everything I am because of everything he is. And so whether I'm, you know, uh, prepping a lesson to teach at school or, or I'm getting ready to head out on the job and build something or I'm at home just cooking dinner for the family, no matter what I'm doing, it's all worship because I'm supposed to do all of it willingly, whatever I'm doing, as if I'm doing it for the Lord and not for people. That's what worship is. Do you get it? The purpose of my job isn't to make me financially secure. It isn't to make me satisfied on the inside. It isn't to make me feel fulfilled or purpose in life. It isn't to give me an identity. No, Jesus is supposed to be the source of all those things. What it's supposed to be is a testing ground for me to worship Jesus. And so I clock in every morning or I walk to every class or, or I sit in my room doing my homework. Or I wake the kids up to get them ready for school. And whatever I'm doing, I do it willingly. As if I were doing it for the Lord, not for myself. As if I were doing it for the Lord, not for some other boss. I change my attitude. I change my job description. And I change my boss. And I do it by measuring my reflection each day and be like, what can I do today to show somebody what Jesus looks like? And then I do it by resting on a Sabbath every week. I get it that everybody wants you to do stuff. People are pulling at you. It's hard to make it work in your schedule. All I can tell you is what God says. That's what God says. I can, that's all I can tell you. I can't make you obey Jesus. I can just tell you what he says. But I promise you, if your goal at work each day was to worship Jesus by giving him everything you've got because of everything he is, and if your goal each week was to obey him and rest one day, even if there's a lot to do still, you would start to feel more filled up inside. It's that simple. I know it's hard to do. I know it's easy to say, but it's just what's there. Do you get it? And maybe you're here and you're like, I'm not a Christian. Or you're like, you are a Christian, but maybe you're so new in this whole Christian thing. And you're like, why would I do that? I mean, there's so much to do. I, I got to get to work. I can't take a whole day off every seven days. I've got to get to work. I've got things to do. And even when I am off, I've got so much work to do around the house that's built up all week. I've got to get to it. No, you don't, really. You don't. You just got to obey Jesus. 
And maybe you're here and you're like, why would I do that? I don't, why would I go into work and want to look like Jesus to other people? Why can't they just read the Bible like I did and find their own Jesus? You know, why would I want to? I want to take the shortcuts because it's easier. I want to get away with stuff when the boss or the teacher is not looking because it's simpler. Why would I not do that stuff? Why are you telling me to think and act and be like Jesus? Why are you telling me to rest and take a Sabbath every week? Why would I ever do that stuff? You're right. None of it makes any sense. Unless I'm really grateful for what Jesus did for me. And so I'm like, I'll obey you, whatever you say. So that's where I'm at. The only reason I do it is because Jesus died for me. But not just died, rose from the dead. So he died for me to prove he loved me, and he rose from the dead to prove I should obey him. I mean, if he loved me that much, shouldn't I listen to what he says? If he's that powerful, shouldn't I be interested in what he wants me to do? Do you get it? Like I've said this to our church before, but there's lots of words in the Bible to describe God. But I often think that the word that is best used to describe God the Father is the word love. I think if you look through the Bible, you find this loving father figure who is patient and long-suffering, full of mercy and compassion. He just loves us, right? But then you've got God the Holy Spirit. And like, I think the word from the Bible that best describes God the Holy Spirit is power. When you hear the Holy Spirit being talked about, it's often talked about in terms of how powerful he is. And what Jesus did when he came on the scene is he took all of God's love and he took all of God's power and he mingled it all together so we could see what it looked like. And I think the best word to describe Jesus in the Bible is the word redemption. And what redemption is, it literally means to buy something back. But really what it is, is it's the coming together of unlimited love and unlimited power. And that's what Jesus did for us. He showed us because there isn't anybody else who would have loved you enough to die for you. So in dying for you, he showed you the love of God. You get it? I mean, the Bible even says like some people would die for like a family member or somebody they're tight with, but who would die for a stranger that treats them like garbage? But that's what Jesus did. And so he showed us what unlimited love looked like, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, which is showing us what unlimited power looks like because who else could come back from the dead? And so while nobody else would die for me, nobody else could rise for me. And so Jesus takes both these things, he mingles them all together, and he says, I get to buy you back because I love you more than anybody could ever love you, and I'm stronger than anybody could ever be. I am redemption. And that's the only reason I take a Sabbath. That's the only reason I care if I'm reflecting Jesus to other people. I don't obey because I'm looking for pain and aggravation. I don't obey because I want to do things the hard way. No, I only obey because Jesus deserves it and I'm grateful to him for it, the things he's done for me. That's it. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's between you and him. I would encourage you to do it because nobody ever loved you more and nobody's ever been stronger or will ever be stronger. He is the God of the universe and he deserves you to follow him. But if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you just to go out today and do two things. Just measure your reflection. Each day, be like, what am I doing today to show somebody else what Jesus looks like? Because when you cuss them out because they tick you off, it doesn't look like Jesus. 
When they see you cheat on the test, it doesn't look like Jesus. When they see you wing all your work and never prepare ahead of time, it doesn't look like Jesus. Looks like somebody who hates their job. And I would challenge you to go out of here today and just have a Sabbath. Block out 24 hours each week. Just be like, you know, for that 24 hours, it's going to be me and the Lord. Just going to rest. Going to spend some extra time with him. I could do some fun things during that time. We watch movies and and, uh, eat fun food and hang out and play games with the kids and stuff like that. But no work. And you know what work is. All you guys are like, well, I'm not on the clock, but I'm still like doing all this work around that. You're stripping with sweat. You painted the whole house on your Saturday. Like that's work. That's still work. You know what work is. But just block out a Sabbath. You got it? Measure, measure your reflection each day. And don't believe the Titanic myth. You need some rest. You need some rest. You're going to sink if you don't get it. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. But thank you, God, even more so for the truth of your word. Would you take the truth from these verses we just looked at and would you penetrate all of our hearts with it? Would you convince all of us who are Christ followers in the room that we need a break? We need a rest each week to draw closer to you. And we need to be more aware of the things we say and do each day, whether or not they're reflecting your image. Would you give us the courage to act on your word, God? And for those in the room who are not Christ followers, just checking out the scene, just visiting, just been here a few times, been here for years and never really given their whole heart to you, surrendered their whole life to you. God, would you penetrate their hearts right now and convince them that nobody could love them more than you do and nobody is powerful enough to save them like you are. And just convince them to cry out to you in the quietness of their own heart. God, no more. From this day forward, I will follow your son. Please save me. God, we need courage because it takes courage to hear the word and then do the word. And so God, I pray you would give us the courage to live out what we've heard today. In Jesus' name I pray. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.